Hey Stefan, welcome to the Vivek podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, how is everything on your side? Ah, uh, you know, hope it, hopefully uh waiting for the lockdowns and restrictions to start easing up a little bit here as uh, you know, it's just been uh a lot of time inside basically uh but i mean it's been good overall i mean just been podcasting away and i'm i'm getting more uh interest from new new coiners as well actually a few few new people who want to buy bitcoin and stuff so it's uh, interesting, interesting times yeah for sure okay so on this episode i want to touch on hard mon- monetary standard and how the world will look like in that scenario so before we jump in can you please walk us through your background and how you got into austrian economics and bitcoin Sure so I was in my mid teens I was about 14 or 15 roughly I went on IRC and I went to an Australian politics channel and there was this guy who kept linking to Mises daily articles right mises.org right uh at the Mises Institute and at that time I didn't quite understand a lot of that stuff but over time it it just started to make a lot more sense to me than what I was getting taught at school and then later what I was being taught at university And so that led me down that track of going into studying a lot of Austrian economics and reading a lot of Austrian economics books. And so that was essentially my background into this and that was why I approached Bitcoin when it was explained to me the right way. It made so much more sense to me uh because I was already coming from that point of view of being anti-central banking and anti um anti-inflation as well. And so there was naturally a very strong appeal for me. Uh now professionally I came from a more chartered accountant background my work was mostly in internal audits working in professional services and financial services so I have worked in banks and so on uh and so yeah so essentially I came across bitcoin and I've just been really hooked ever since and so I well nowadays I'm mostly known for my podcast which is basically my effort to try and really raise the level of education that's available for anyone in the space to be able to quickly get up to speed and just get a good honest source of information so that's that's how uh, i see uh, my role in the space nowadays yeah so you have one, like i would say the best podcast in bitcoin so i've been i've been listening to your podcast since day one so yes it's pretty amazing so you have spent a lot of time studying austrian economics so for people who have never heard of austrian economics can you please give us a little introduction of what austrian economics in and economics is and what hard and sound money is sure yeah so look uh austrian economics is a specific school of thought it was actually named after some of the early founders of the school where basically they were kind of distinguished from the german economics school and so at the time i think it was more like a put down term it was like all oh, those austrians sort of thing um but then it became the term sort of stuck and it became known for a specific way of analyzing and uh understanding the world around us and how humans act and so the basic method of austrian economics is known as praxeology so it's essentially you can think of it like deductive reasoning you're trying to understand based on reasoning from a, a known principle so uh, the common the quintessential example is man acts purposefully and so then from that what can you reason based on that and so uh ludwig von mises was the one to really explain that in his book human action which is his magnum opus right his you know big life work big text 
And so that essentially was a, an articulation of the method. So it was kind of like at that time, there were a lot of economists doing stuff, but he was sort of helping clarify exactly, hey, this is what we're doing here. We're, 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 this is the method of economics. And so typically Austrian economics focuses on spontaneous order. Uh, the emergence like it's it's like a bottom-up uh way of thinking it's it's looking at the actions down at the individual level as opposed to uh trying to look at aggregate numbers and aggregate statistics that a typical say a keynesian or a monetarist economist might be thinking about and looking at oh okay what's the aggregate demand or what's the aggregate you know supply and uh what's what are some of these different national accounting identities and so on so in terms of what Austrians will recommend is typically free market policies and free market economics. And how, how the sound and hard money comes into play? Right. So the way to think on this is reading various different texts, such as Murray Rothbard's What Has Government Done to Our Money? or Gita Hulsman's uh, The Ethics of Money Production, you can get this picture that fiat money, this idea of money by decree, right? I'm the king of the land or I'm the government and I dictate that this is the money of the land. That's fiat money. The alternative way of understanding money is more like it's arising from the market. It's, it's emergent. It's, it's not, there was no explicit agreement that we said, oh, hey, this is going to be the money of the land. It just kind of evolved out that way. And so the reason why... Austrians are quite anti fiat money. Essentially, it, it, we see they see it as it's unjust, and it also leads to bad outcomes for the economy. And so that is typically why there's a focus on what's called sound money, meaning money chosen by the market. And there's not uh, um, there's not uh, dictated by the government. So, yeah, so yeah, so there's not a government who's artificially pushing it in one direction to say, no, this should be the money, right? And so if you look back in history and if you read some of these different books, they point out that that really is the history of money is that fiat money, the money by decree, as we mentioned, right? This paper money or plastic money is not something that naturally emerges as a result of voluntary interaction. It is actually, in fact, something that emerges as a result of government intervention. And one typical uh, premise or argument that Austrians will use and think about is this idea that if people make a voluntary exchange, it is, you, you have a strong assurance that both parties agreed that this was in their own best interests. However, in the case of a government coercive action, we don't have this assurance of mutual benefit and additionally if you look historically what's happened is typically the person who had the power to print more money they did do that and so a typical thing that might happen is you know the king of the, the new king of the area might take in all the money and then they might shave off a little bit and then in the meantime change the the coins over to put their stamp or whatever on it and that was that's known as monetary debasement basically because they would be able to take those silver pieces or gold pieces and use that for their own treasury 
And so that's like just a typical example of how that sort of thing would happen. And then the other way that it can happen is if all the gold, for example, gets stored into very centralized vaults and then those vaults get intervened with. So for example, Fort Knox and whatever, um, basically what happens is because you can't send gold easily anywhere around the world, it is vulnerable to centralization. And that centralization is what then allows a government or large powerful entity to control the money. And then that is how they are able to push everyone off of the sound money into, or what, what was had some connection to sound money into a purely fiat money, fiat monetary standard. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So how you imagine to be the, to be the world look like in, in fiat, sorry, in Bitcoin standard world, like how you think the world will look like? Right. So, yeah. So what do I think the world will look like under a Bitcoin standard? I think we will slowly move to a world that has much smaller, if not zero government. Uh, so we will see probably something like a lot of Singapore's and Hong Kong's and Liechtenstein's and Switzerland's and Monaco's and places like that. I think we'll see a world with thousands and thousands of those. And potentially some of them may even be, let's call them anarcho-capitalist zones, if you will. That's a possibility. Uh, I don't know if that happens in our lifetimes, maybe. Uh, I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, but in terms of what that does to society, I think we have to understand what are some of the impacts of inflation and what are some of the cultural impacts of that onto our society today. So for example, the existence of very liquid and deep debt markets is a phenomenon of fiat money. And so in the Bitcoin standard world, I think it's going to be a lot more equity focused as opposed to debt. So if you're thinking about how a company is structured, so they will, they typically have two main ways they can fund things, right? If they want to get funding, they can either get debt funding, issue out debt, or they can issue stocks and ownership share in the company. So my view is that longer term, we move towards a more equity-based funding model and less of a debt funding model. I believe there would still be debt, obviously, but just a lot less compared to what there is today. And the reason for that is the government is able to create these bonds and sell them into a liquid market. And it also mandates that people hold some of those as well. So for example, pension funds and some of these insurers and so on, there are capital requirements. So for example, the Basel III capital requirements, and they will require that these entities hold a certain number or a certain percentage of government bonds. And so essentially, that is kind of forcing these companies to fund, to help fund the government. And it's it, done in a specific way that can be financial repression as well. And so what that does is it basically forces these companies to take a loss over time because even if that bond has a nominal return, it might have a negative return in real terms. Meaning, for example, you might be earning 1% or half a percent return, but the inflation might be 3%. So you're really just losing. And so in a Bitcoin standard, I believe we would see something, what we would see is closer, something like growth deflation. So we would see the price of things would be coming down over time steadily for everyone because 
which is that just reflects increased productivity. So as opposed to the world right now where uh, Daniel Sanchez has an interesting article. He's written uh, why inflation is sipping your milkshake. So imagine that if you're a poor person or a middle-class person, it's harder for you to get ahead in today's world because you naturally are just less able to access the big credit that allows you to go and invest in these big productive assets. And so typically you're going to have to keep some of that money in cash and then cash is losing value over time. And so it just kind of creates this really vicious downward cycle. And it also pushes people to go and invest when that's not their job. So imagine if you're a baker or you're a, you work in a bicycle shop or whatever, you are not necessarily an investment professional. Why should you be having to invest just to keep water and just to tread water against your, like to not lose purchasing power in real terms. And so I view it like going to a more hard money standard such as gold standard or Bitcoin standard. I believe it will be a gold, a Bitcoin standard. I believe moving to that Bitcoin standard will enable people to more easily preserve their wealth and they will not need to do the whole ETF stock indexing thing that's happening nowadays, which is very much driven by central banks. So central banks are essentially becoming a big backstop for the economy and they are just continually printing more and continually making themselves available to quote unquote provide liquidity. And this just has the function of continually pumping the market up. They just continually reinflate the bubble. Now it can be a trap to think that, Oh, that means we're going to have high inflation straight away. Not necessarily. Sometimes it shows up in asset inflation. Sometimes it just, it, it shows up in the sense that, think of it this way, if we had the full growth deflation benefit, prices might have fallen 3%. But because of inflation at, let's say, 4%, we see the price rise only 1%. So really what we're seeing is the tip of the iceberg. So really, we should have actually had a, you know, like that, we should have had a real benefit all of society with the same amount of money with the same hundred dollars or with the same you know half a bitcoin or whatever you would have been able to buy three percent more stuff but in reality because of the four percent inflation you can only buy you can buy one percent less stuff it's like I'm, it's a kind of a crude example but i'm just using it to prove a point or just to show the concept there that it's like that concept of the hidden uh, the it's hidden below the surface it's like this iceberg idea. And so what it does is it just really causes this really negative impact to the rest of society because it, this system is unjust in a way because it, it rewards those people in politically advantageous positions. And it's, it's almost like what is politically beneficial uh, or it's what's beneficial for the people who are closer to the power so to speak and so the government is a very big it's 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 it has a lot of debt the government is in a lot of debt and so essentially it is able to spend like a drunken sailor and force everyone else to kind of pay the cost for that because they get the new money first before all the prices have risen have risen where everyone else gets that money later and so it just creates this really unjust cycle for the whole for all of society so 
that's one way to put it. And so that's why we see these crazy bubbles in whatever it is, dot-com bubble and housing bubble and so on. Uh, and so arguably we're moving into this everything bubble and that just causes massive malinvestment for all of society. And so the way an Austrian economist is thinking of that is more like, imagine if the interest rate was actually correctly set by the market and then the production was also set uh, and determined based on the actual resources available as opposed to this sort of political allocation of resources and the political allocation of cheap credit, then we would live in a society that was much more just and we would live in a society that was much more prosperous and it wouldn't be such a uh, winner takes all, all the money goes to kind of these rich hedge fund managers and central like people who are closer to the monetary spigot. Yeah, so also fiat currencies encourages uh, spendings and gambling, I would say. And uh, on the other hand, hard money encourages saving. So can you please elaborate on this idea of uh, saving saving money instead of gambling it out for more gains and how it will be beneficial for the society? Right. Well, I think it just... It's it's the whole it's a holistic thing. So it kind of comes to this whole idea that if you are in an environment where you gain more by actually saving, then you'll actually start saving more. Whereas right now you get punished for saving. And so lo and behold, many people don't save. Uh and so that is also why society is has been put into such a fragile position now because not enough people were able to save. And so I think what we'll see over time is more people caring about their families and communities uh, because I think the broader, the broader point I, as I see it is that governments are able to spend so much and because they can spend so much and because we live in all these democracies around the world, people just vote. They want more goodies. They want more free stuff. And so that's why UBI is becoming very popular, universal basic income. So these ideas are becoming so popular now that it's almost impossible for any politician to get voted in by promising, not by not promising free stuff. They have to promise free stuff because otherwise they'll just not get voted in. And so what that does is it changes the way you act because now you believe, okay, everything is just going to be handed to me on a platter. And I don't have to worry about saving for my own retirement. I don't have to worry about saving for my family because the big daddy or big mummy government is there to do it for me. And so it changes the game in terms of how people act. So so that is the high level way I would think about it. And then it also, from a gambling perspective, uh, to your point earlier, there is this thing called the leverage effect. And so one way to think of that is Instead of risking, let's say, $100, you might risk $10 at 10 times margin. And so what somebody can do then is really multiply their gains. And so what happens over time is known as like a carry trade where people will borrow in one currency to, to, do, uh, to do their investments and lever up. And so it's caused this crazy financial speculation all around the world because they think that well basically each of those individual people is acting in their own interest right 
but because there is a central bank that's acting there, it creates this problem known as moral hazard because big companies will end up getting bailed out. And so they have an incentive because then they can, if they gamble and then they win, they can privatize those, those gains. But if they gamble and then they lose, they can socialize those losses, pushing the loss onto the rest of society because the government will end up just printing more money, basically raiding the accumulated wealth of the rest of society. And what it also does is it, it's really insidious in the sense that when people experience a gain, they have to because of capital gains tax laws in most countries around the world, you end up having to pay on a gain. And even if that gain wasn't a gain in real terms, you might've lost money in real terms, but you're assessed on your gain in nominal terms. So that house you might've bought ages and ages ago for a hundred thousand might be 200,000. Now in real terms, it might be, you know, 150,000, but you're getting taxed on that as though it was a hundred thousand dollar gain. So you can see the injustice on that point as well. And so it causes all of these negative side effects. And so here in Australia, and I'm sure you probably have similar where you are as well. I've, seen, I've heard some of my listeners have told me that they've seen this in their countries as well, where basically you would see like this 28 year old or whoever who had been investing in property since they were 20 and they'd just been levering up, levering up, levering up, levering up to the point where you know, they're just up to their debt in eyeballs and they have 30 different properties and there would be all these articles kind of maybe not as much nowadays because it's become so crazy. Um, but it was quite uh, funny that these people, it's just absurd, right? Because these people have got, um, you know, all these properties and they have they, they, sort of made out to look like, oh, look, they're a big property mogul. They've got millions of dollars of property, but they've got a lot of debt as well. And it, all of that is, again, it's a leverage effect. So it just causes this kind of financial speculation and gambling just to even tread water. Yeah, yeah, just to survive, people need to invest that money, that fiat currency, which, which keeps on inflating. So they need to store value somewhere. So, okay, so how, how the credit market will look like in, in hard money economy? And won't it slow down the growth of the economy? Because uh, if the banks won't have a lot of money to give to entrepreneurs to build, won't it slow down the growth? Right. So I think people are operating under a paradigm where, you know, for the time that you and I have been alive, it has been a debt fueled paradigm. And people have been riding this massive tailwind of central banks, like backstopping that. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean we would have less growth. I actually think we would have more prosperity and faster growth because the money, we wouldn't, we wouldn't experience the pain of all this malinvestment that we're seeing now. So the traditional example that Mises goes through is this idea of a master builder. And he's talking about this idea that if you had been given falsely the wrong signal that you needed only 8,000 bricks to build this house, but actually you need 10,000 bricks, you would want to know that as soon as possible, but it's almost, you can think of it like the market under a central bank and under the government influence is sending the wrong signal. And so that means these people go ahead with the project as though they thought 10,000 bricks were available when really that's not actually true. Right. And so bringing it back to, you know, your question, it's a, it's really, it's not about how much money is out there. It's actually about how much stuff there is out there. 
right? Like physical things and also human productivity, right? The human skill and human capital, human labor. So the real scarcity is in those things. It's not necessarily in like just paper tickets, right? So it's not that we need to print more paper tickets to become more productive. It's actually just that we need to get better at allocating the people and the resources, right? The tractors and the computers and the farm machinery and the everything else, it needs to get coordinated. And so that's a very important concept within Austrian economics is this idea of this the capital structure of production, meaning the things that you and I use, even if it's simple as a pen or a pencil, there's a process to making that. And so those goods can be layered out in time and the way to coordinate that production is using interest rates and the prices of, you know, of the different goods on the market. And so the problem fundamentally is that with fiat money, it's sending the wrong signals. It's kind of pushing entrepreneurs into the wrong directions and they're bidding away the resources when they wouldn't normally be able to. And so if we were to take away that problem, then entrepreneurs would naturally be able to just bid for the resources and over time that would just reflect what the consumers actually want because entrepreneurs will profit if they serve the consumer correctly and if they are able to have lower costs than the revenues that they earn from the products and services that they sell so fundamentally it's not that we need the money supply to expand right to give loans and so on it's that we need those resources to get allocated better and so that's the way i would think through that particular point and so it's yeah so basically in a nutshell i think the credit will be as i have listened to diff some different lectures from guido holzman i've the way i've heard him explain this is that it was more like commercial credit. It was more like commercial terms, right? So when you pay uh, an invoice, sometimes they might say, okay, pay it within 30 days, right? Like that kind of credit, as opposed to, oh, you're going into, you're going into a business, here's a business loan for it. That wasn't as common. Uh, so the difficult thing though, is that it's not really a living memory thing because it's, you know, like it's been since what, early 70s, 1971, uh, that the world has been on a fiat, fully fiat standard. And so, yes, there are people alive who are you know, older and sort of saw things before that. Um, and what we would see today is basically a phenomenon based on the easy availability of that fiat and the easy availability, the overly easy availability of that credit. So many entrepreneurs that you speak with nowadays, they have in a sense, cut their teeth and grown up in this fiat monetary inflationary world. So it's difficult for them to see anything other than that. It's, it's like we're fish and we don't even understand that we're in, we're in water. We live in water, but they might not understand that because for most of their entrepreneurial life, that's all they've known. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Also, do you think this fiat currency world can go on forever like we have seen from past 50 years? They, they keep on printing and keep just keep on expanding <laughs> so the world. So do you the, think like, can it go on for I, the next? I honestly, I think it's one of those things where it's easy for, I think it's just one of those things where it's difficult for people to really make a prediction about it. Like they, we should assume that they will try to do everything they can to keep the house of cards going. The question is how much money would they need to print? 
how what uh what is the inflationary expectation of just the people out there because if people start to have this high inflationary expectation they will all of a sudden want to demand or hold less cash but it's a complicated thing because you have to think about it how it works on a global level so it it may well be and this is a view that i've seen raul powell share which is that essentially he's kind of short-term bullish on the us dollar reason being other countries have a worse it's the it's the least bad of a bad bunch so it may well be that other countries have their money inflate uh before the us dollar does and so that's an interesting thing as well so we don't know exactly how it plays out but we are seeing some turmoil happen now in lebanon for example uh some banks were getting burned down and people were protesting and then that protest turned into a riot and you know it's uh it's not a good thing to see uh, because we are seeing that social unrest factor happen. Uh, but unfortunately, these are fiat yeah, money sure. problems. And how, how do you think government will earn their revenue? Obviously, there will be a less, a lot less government in that, in that scenario. But how will government will earn revenue? Right now, they just earn it by printing or taxation. But how their revenue model will look like in that, fiat, it's in that hard currency world? Yeah, so I think it will be mostly... Uh, well, if we move to something like the free private cities model, it'll be more like an upfront subscription fee. Uh, so people would just pay a certain amount. So actually on an episode of my show with Titus Gable, we were speaking about it, I think off the top of my head, it was $1,200 or p- perhaps $1,500 US, USD for something like a Singapore or Hong Kong level of... Um, quality and standard so that's that's some of the stuff that Titus Gable was talking about and so maybe that that is one option I think over time we will see less and less of a consumption tax and income tax I, I suspect that the state and the governments around the world will try to move towards property tax um, but that's my speculation I don't know for sure um, but I my guess is they start reforming some of the taxes and if I had to speculate my guess would be we see Bitcoin price rise over the next 10 years. A bunch of Bitcoiners get rich. They, and then maybe some politicians are also Bitcoiners. And then some of those politician, sorry, some of those Bitcoiners try and buy a politician or influence a politician to make better laws for them. So they might try to take away the capital gains tax on Bitcoins, or they might try and just make you know, yeah, make them better, make the make it a better environment for that. And this might not happen in every country, but in some countries around the world, I suspect that's what what will happen. And then I suspect that a bunch of Bitcoin people will go to those countries where it is better, and then it will just become this virtuous cycle of upwards economic growth and development happening because people are able to actually operate in in a in a sound money standard. So. That is my yeah. speculation on how yeah, that seems quite possible. Go. So yeah, and so okay. So, what do you think are like true and unavoidable defects of hard hard money economy? What what do you think are you know some unavoidable consequences? Right. So look, it's I think of it more like there will be some social unrest and things that happen in this transition period in terms of you know people losing jobs and 
the the difficulty I see as well is that a lot of governments have a lot of occupational licensing and regulations that stop people from starting new businesses. And because people have invested so much time in say becoming a doctor or becoming a lawyer or becoming an accountant or whatever, that is kind of like a state permissioned uh, career. They won't want to change out of some of these careers. Uh, and, and so there might be a lot of, let's say bankers and then bankers have to get laid off. And then there'll be a whole bunch of bankers who think that they should be earning X, Y, and Z amount of money. But the reality of it is now that post, you know, uh, fiat money, or uh, there's not as much need for bankers or there's not as much salary for that role anymore because now they're no longer receiving the Cantillon effect benefit that they were in the past of being close to the monetary spigot. And so that is something that might be difficult as well, especially when there's a lot of regulation and we can make it difficult for families and difficult for people to adjust because for example, you might be a young family and you need childcare. Uh, but then the state has made it so that every person who does childcare has to have a degree. And then what does that do to the cost of childcare? Boom, it, pro it massively raises, raises the price. So that's, just a, that's, a, that's one example. We may see a lot of um, rhetoric around inequality. We may see a lot of rhetoric around things like, oh, the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining and so on. So these are things that like there are answers for these things, right? So the Bitcoin people have written many different articles. It's been included in the topic of podcasts and YouTube videos and books and so on. Many of these things have been answered, but there will still be, you know, some like, there'll still be potentially some uh, difficulty and, you know, like trying to get people around to that idea that you can't just keep kicking the can, right? So, Politicians, for example, in the current world are very used to being able to kick the can and now they won't be able to do that. And there'll be a whole swathe of the population who have become more dependent on welfare. And then it's kind of, it's like ripping off the bandaid, right? How do you like, well, it, it might be difficult because a lot of these people in the past, there would have been private mutual aid societies that taught people how to uh, be self-reliant and how to look after their community and do these this that and the other but in a welfare state world it's not as good like that and so there will be people who are more dependent and who will really struggle in this transition over to becoming more like a sound money standard and so i think that those are things that will take a bit of work but hopefully the overall benefits to all of society in terms of productivity and not like so not not having all that malinvestment happen and not having so much of the productivity of society getting sucked away into you know, uh, the state basically, and being available for the actual people, then they will receive a massive benefit from that. So I think on net, they will be much, much better off. But again, it's, it's getting through that transition period that may be. So do you difficult. think, do you see this play out in our lifetime? I think so in our lifetime, but I don't know. I don't really have a strong inclination of when. Yeah, so. for sure. Okay, so one last question before we wrap up. So what do you think are potential threats to Bitcoin apart from gold standard and government controls? So what are the potential threats you think? Well, maybe, yeah, I mean, maybe we uh, need... Uh, so not necessarily like code review of Bitcoin Core itself, but things like all those little dependencies and things that we need to make it work, right? So 
whether there are other kind of libraries and other cryptography aspects that Bitcoin is sort of relying on, those things could be strengthened. Those things, uh, you know, or, or another example might be hardware. So a lot of hardware, right, our computers and so on, they are often closed source or they've been pwned or owned in some way. And so that is also an effort. So there are efforts being made in that direction as well of having like open source hardware, you know, open source secure element, right? So that's another one as well in the, in the world of hardware wallets. So that may be one area where, um, you know, potentially there could be some risks and that those hopefully will get addressed over time and improved on. And obviously there are people working on a whole bunch of these different ideas to try and improve the security and stability of Bitcoin. Um, but those are potential risks as well that maybe, you know, if uh, uh, somehow people got a bug in, in into some underlying dependency or some underlying compiler, and then that gets into um, a piece of Bitcoin code or, into some related software that a Bitcoin user is using and then they risk losing coins and, you know, that makes it difficult for them to, you know, secure their coins or keep them private or something like that. Those are, you know, potential. Uh, I don't, again, I don't think those are likely, yeah, uh, but I guess uh, in terms of non-government threats or non, um, yeah, non, yeah, non-government yeah, basically threats. non-government threats. I think those are, that's potential. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah. last two questions. So best book you ever read? Best book I ever read. Oh, maybe you can throw in a couple of names. Um, yeah, I mean, like some of my fa- yeah. favorites, um, "The Ethics of Money Production." That was really one of my favorite books. Um, what else do I really enjoy? Yeah, "Man, Economy, and State" by Murray Rothbard was a fantastic book. Um, I'm just trying to think. There's so many that I just I can I kind of can't really even you know um, name them all now, but. Uh, yeah, I think those are some of the great books. I mean, Human Action, obviously, Theory of Money and Credit. Um, yeah, I think th- those are some of the great books. Um, but uh, I- I'm sure there are some that I'm missing. And I've, it feels like a lot of the books kind of all go into a blur and you don't uh, kind of remember this all the specific points from each one, but they kind of all cohesively yeah. form a really yeah, exactly. cool picture okay so last question if you can go back and su- suggest one change to satoshi what would it be uh, <laughs> um maybe you know don't hand over to gavin andreessen <laughs> <laughs> okay stefan thanks for coming on thanks for taking the time to do this thanks for inviting me vivek and please, can you please let people know where they can find you? Oh, sure. So uh, my main website is stefanlevera.com. That's where you can find the podcast. Uh, the other websites to look up to look up are ministryofnodes.com.au. That's where you can find a whole bunch of uh, Bitcoin articles and guides by me and my co-founder, Katan Gulabdis. And then the other one is bitcoinerventures.com. And that's for accredited investors around the world who want to invest in Bitcoin companies along with myself and some of the partners in that investment syndicate. Perfect. Okay, Stefan, thanks, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me.